0: We've been looking at, if you're visiting, the cost of Christmas. And not the uh, bemoaning of everybody's credit card bills as they're going and buying things. But the cost of Christmas the first time. Two weeks ago, we saw the cost of proclamation. That centuries before it cost the prophets to stand up and predict and tell what God was doing. And you and I, if we're going to stand in the city, even though you're telling people good news, it costs you something to stand up for what's right. Last week, we saw the cost of lamentation. And the most difficult part of the whole Christmas story Why Herod, in his insane jealousy, killed all the young children, two and under, trying to exterminate the Christ. And how far evil will go. God is not the author of evil, but he will someday put an end to it. In the meantime, pain is part of the process of suffering that helps us to grow into the image of Christ. Not masochistically, but by the power of God. This morning we take a look at the third cost, and the more of the fun one, the cost of adoration. One of the great favorite characters everybody has of this whole incarnation story. You know what incarnation means? Carne means flesh. If you have chili con carne, you have beans with meats. That's exactly the same word. Incarnation means God with meat. It means that God himself put on flesh like you and I. And the story of this bizarre of all miracles and the people who find out, the wise men, a couple of foreigners... If you have your Bible, would you take it out and stand with me for the reading of God's Word and turn to Matthew 2, it's on page 784 in your pew Bible, Matthew 2 verses 7 through 12. We saw Herod trying to figure out where Jesus would be born to destroy them, but then these magi, these wise men from the east continue on in their journey. If you're visiting, when I get done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God, because God speaks to us. So together, as God's people, let's read aloud verses 7 through 12. As you read, listen, with your heart, you're reading God's word. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the words you just read never will. We really don't know how many there were. There could have been two. Certainly it's plural. There could have been 38. We have no idea. Through the centuries, they thought three because of the three gifts. We don't know their names. The church later, centuries later, came up with the three different names traditionally. But we do know what was taking place. They're looking at, as we look at these wise men, the cost of adoration. To adore something is to love extravagantly. When you adore someone or something. To adore something is you spend without even thinking of the cost. Because the only joy is to bless the object of your love. All of us in here have bought gifts for Christmas that were way too much money. Not because we were materialistic or trying to impress somebody, but we just adored, we loved that person, and this was the perfect gift. Well, as these wise men, these magi, and the word magi probably comes from the Medes and the Persians, we don't know totally for sure, but we know that they were court, wise men, the astronomers, the kind of the intelligentsia of their culture, they went to great personal expense and traveled a vast distance over two years to be able to come and to worship this Christ. And what we learned from them this morning is, first of all, what was the quest behind this adoration? You and I are on a journey in life, every one of us in here. And in this journey, what drives us, what motivates us, to me is always a great mystery, but whatever is behind that adoration, what we're looking for, it pushes us on. We also find out the gifts that they brought in their adoration. When you adore something, even though like they were clowning around saying you were not going to show up without something, when you adore someone, you have a gift. And the gifts they brought were incredibly symbolic. But finally, also the gifts that they received from their adoration. And you and I, whatever you're looking for in life, when we come and we worship Christ and we come to his side... The remarkable thing is we try to bless him because he deserves it. We're the one that gets the backsplash of God's blessing and it is the great way to live. Well, let's take a look at who these guys were. You got your Bible. Turn back over to Matthew, the second chapter, and starting in verse 1 on page 783 in your pew Bible. And what is this quest behind their adoration? The longer I live, I am fascinated. Are you not what makes people do what they do? Verse 1. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage." Well, what do we know about him from this? In Matthew, it's fascinating. Remember, he is writing to the Jews to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He uses Scripture more than any other writer. This was that which was prophesied by the prophets. to show that Jesus is for the Jews. And yet, he's the only one that has in this account these wise Gentiles from another land. And isn't this great about God? He tells the shepherds about their Jewish Messiah through the angels as they break into the heavens, the time-space continuum and sing. But he tells these Gentile foreigners through the heavens themselves as they are studying the stars. Now, we don't know exactly what it was as far as what drove them, but in the first century B.C., there was this general feeling that something was going to rise up in Israel. Several of the Roman historians wrote about it. Not just Suetonian, was he talked about it, but even Tacitus said, quote, there was a firm persuasion that this very time the East was to grow powerful and a ruler from Judea would acquire universal empire, unquote. That everybody was kind of looking to Israel in this sense, just kind of a bubbling up. So that they saw something we don't know what it was. We know that Sirius, the dog star, also called the Prince Star, made a low helioptical orbit at this time. We know that Halley's Comet came by about 5 B.C. roughly at this time. We know that also Jupiter and Venus and Mars aligned about in 4 B.C. No, Who knows what they saw, but they knew that meant a birth of a king. And so they put their money where their mouth is, and they start walking. In fact, there's a tradition that what drove Marco Polo was not just to find the trade route, but he had heard of something called the Annals of Sufi Abbas, which were supposedly the writings of these Magi, these Persians and Medes, when they went back and said they found the Christ out. Now, who knows? It was probably just tradition, but it was one of the things that was pushing him on. Well, the great difference is that there they were willing to spend their money and their time to fill that hole in their heart. Isn't it funny how many people sit around and whine and complain about their lives and don't do anything to change it? Or how many of us just learn to settle for second best and kind of the slop of the world when God is calling us? And so when when we get into those situations, the question is, can we figure life out? And I want to tell you, a lot of times people think by going through this direction that by Taking advantage of others. I know in L.A. and other big cities, the general rule is look out for yourself because those so-and-sos will get you. And do you know why you think that? Because those so-and-sos will get you. That's why. Because big city living, it gets really tough. So people get really hardcore and they look for them and they try to think it's God wants me to take care of myself. Two things that are never found in Scripture. Cleanliness is next to godliness. I used to remind my mother, that is not biblical. <laughs> the other thing is, God takes care of those that take care of themselves. It's about as far away from scripture as you can get. God takes care of those who ask for help. But man, in this world it gets tough. One of my favorite stories of, uh, uh, have you ever read this criminal lawyers award contest? Uh, the Bar Association gets together bad attorney stories, true ones. This has got to be one of my favorites. true story. In Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple of years ago, a lawyer purchased a box of very rare cigars, very expensive, and took out insurance on them. Then he turned in a claim because they were destroyed, quote, in a series of small fires. <laughs> the insurance company said, there is no way we are paying for something you smoke. He sued them and won. And the judge said, even though it was probably frivolous, that they did say that they would insure them. He got $15,000 settlement. Here's the best part of the story. When he cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. (laughs) And he had to pay a $25,000 fine and six months in jail for that. But why is it that we think that we can go out and take advantage of everybody else, and by the way, and still have our little Christian card? Take advantage of others because that's just called good business. That's tough market. That's what it's all about. And think that we're going to fill this hole in our heart. The Magi were wise enough to say no. And so they ponied up and they went following whatever it was. And you know the interesting thing about whatever God was leading them in the heavens. that he, they're, Here they're these pig-eating Gentile astronomers. Coming to meet the king of the Jews, the rightful one. King Herod, who is the king of Judah, misses it. Why? Because the Magi were teachable. And you and I, one of the great gifts God can give us all of our days is to say, Lord, teach me. God, I'm open for you to show me whatever you want. God delights in showing and communicating. But it's an issue with the heart, not of the head. And as they go, the star fades off and on. Who knows what was going on? Maybe it went under the orbit or, uh, or on, over the horizon. But don't you think, how long do you think you'd be out there packing it after a star that you lost contact with? Maybe after six months you think they might have said, you know, we ought to rethink this whole plan. But they didn't because God had a call in their heart. And they went to Jerusalem and they asked for help. They said, where is he who was born King of the Jews? And when that left, it says, then the star reappeared. Did you get that order? That as soon as they step out in faith then God responds to them back in that direction and calls them towards them. And very often, God will give us light, and if we move on it, then he'll give us even more light. But if we're afraid and we decide not to move on it, he holds back. And what we have, we're all looking for the perfect life, aren't we? Pascal said in that very famous quote, All humans have a God-shaped vacuum in their heart. And until God fills it, nothing else. We look for the perfect relationship. We look for the perfect date. We look for the perfect marriage, the perfect family. We look for the perfect house, the perfect job. We look for the perfect church. And remember, if you find the perfect church, don't join it. You ruin it. That as we keep looking for that. And we look for everything. And what we long for is a person. And this person is God. And all the little side things that we think that are beautiful from his creation to humanity itself are just side splashes. They're aromas of a rose we have never seen yet. And someday we're going to embrace it. Joy himself. Love himself. And when Christ was born into this world in this mystery, he calls us to keep pushing on. I want to tell you, in your journey and mine through this life, and none of us know how long it is, but I guarantee the meter's running. you got one bullet to shoot. It's called your life. And I want to tell you, Roger and Karen and I, we get opportunities to help people plan their funerals. If you haven't done that yet, plan it out. By the way, if you don't have a will, get one. If you're not an organ donor, sign up. They don't come early, okay? (laughs) Help out. But you know why a lot of people don't plan out these kind of things? Because we're avoiding death. But I promise you, you will die. Aren't you glad you came this morning? Isn't this cheery uh, Christmas? (laughs) And the great news is in the middle of that, but that God is preparing and helping us. And as people look back at their life, I have yet to meet someone that has regretted failures. I'm serious. When the time comes and they say, your ticket is pulled, you're going to get to go home... But you know what people regret by the buckets? It's not failures. It's never trying. People that have lived their life and they never tried whatever that thing was have the sense of, why didn't I try? And I think that is so true for us spiritually, this call on our life. That when we say, Lord, I really do want to try to live for you and to walk in a yielded way, not earning our salvation. This is not about bribing God when we adore him. But satisfying this quest in him. And the tragics are the ones that quit 50 yards in front of winning the marathon. The guys that go down... Have you ever seen these crazy NFL players? They start celebrating a little early before they're in the end zone and somebody nails them from behind. Those are people doing laps the next week, by the way. Do you know that Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years with these complaining people? What if at year 38 he said to God... No mas, they're all yours. I'm out of here. He would have missed. King David was anointed by God and Samuel. Do you know how long it took David from his anointing till he sat on the throne? Eight years he was a fugitive. Eight years Saul was chasing after him. What if in year seven he said, that's enough? Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul, meets the resurrected Christ. Between that and his first missionary journey, we studied 14 years of preparation. What if at year 12, Satan had come to him? And no doubt, this way, Satan comes to all of us and goes, You know, you tried that God thing. He never does come through. You know, those dreams you've got, he'll just dash your heart. Don't follow him. But the Magi were wise enough to say, No, we're going to follow through. And there's so many opportunities. I was reading this last week, one of the greatest missionary mess ups in history. Kublai Khan in 1249 sent a message to Pope Gregory X that he was waving on what to be religious wise. And he said, if you send some of your holy men and baptize a hundred of my closest leaders and bodyguard, we will give you more Christians than you could imagine. Pope Gregory sent two priests. That's just amazing. From Rome, they were doing fine, but they got to Armenia, and they got to where it's snowy, and they turned around and came back. Can you imagine what history would have been if Kublai Khan would have been baptized as a Christian? And so often, we're doing things, and we go, oh, we go back, and we miss these great opportunities. But adoration is what drives you on. Not just being disciplined and hanging in there. Do do you let the Lord let himself love them? And not only that, the gifts that they brought. If you look over here in the verse 9, it says, or verse 10, When they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, now this shows you that's obvious later, because Mary was in the barnyard, probably a cave, in the Luke narration. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, of course, you know the symbolism of it, is a gift for a king. You give the king the very best. Isn't it true this time of the year, it's not the gift, it's the thought that counts? But don't people give you gifts and you say to yourself, what were they thinking? <laughs> when Carolyn and I were uh, in seminary and early married and we were putting ourselves to school and I mean, things were really tight and poor. I used to love to get weddings and funerals because of the buffets afterwards, but... Uh, <laughs> I have a really wealthy relative who has some really great stuff. And he called up and he said, you know, I know you're having a tough time and I want you to come on over. We're changing our whole theme for our furniture and so, why don't you come over and we got some stuff for you. Uh, we were thinking kind of like, like, this is incredible. You know, what will it be like, you know? So uh, we finally, you know, hid the Herculon aside. You know, we were all excited. We went over there to their house and go buy their cherry wood and their leather. And they take us down to the basement. There is this couch that a dormy would reject. It was just the most beat up piece of junk. And rather than take it to the dump, He called me to come and get it. So, and he also had this old drawer, and so I said thank you, and I shut his lips in it, and then, uh, well, I want to tell you my feelings about him. Obviously, now there's still a little resentment. I might get some counseling for this, but... Do you think God feels any different when we go cheap on him? When we say, oh, God, as it's convenient, I'll serve you. You know, and Lord, when I'm not so tired, I will get up and read your word and actually pray to you and shut up so I could actually listen so you can direct me. But right now I've got a lot of stuff going on. God, when time's ready, I'm going to help the church. I sure am when there's a church worth my talent, you know, worth helping. When I meet a small group that really is lovable versus these weird Christian geeks, you know, then I'll really help you. And, Lord, I want to tell you, times have been tight. But as soon as I make a lot of money, Lord, you're first on my list. God says, forget it. You've been told God will accept whatever you give him. You were lied to. Because the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says, God says, I will take the best of what you have or I will take nothing. You can't give him the best of what you don't have. But when we give him the leftover chump change and the crumbs of our time and we say, oh, I love you, Jesus. He says, don't play that game with me. I love you too much for you to pretend that I'm just an add-on to your life. I am God or I am nothing. And he does this not because he's insecure or he needs us. He does this because he wants us and he loves us. In this adoration, they bring the very best, the gifts of the gold. In fact, the word laterio, the Greek word for worship most of the time in the New Testament, laity, the liturgical comes from that. You know what it means? Wages for service. It was what they were paid originally. And what it finally meant is that you would come and the wages, it cost you something. It cost you, and you are such smart people to be here this morning, and if you're visiting wherever your home church is where they're preaching Christ, to set aside time to worship the Lord, because it fills your tank up. And we get this love relationship between the Creator and the creation. And it overflows. What about, remember when Mary, John records, took a pound of costly ointment, of pure nard. Nard was so expensive because the oil based to it came from the oil from whale's brains. You don't find a lot of those laying around. And then they would put incredible spices into it. And that's why when she poured it on the feet of Jesus, Judas says, you could have sold that for a year's wages. It's probably worth more than that. And Jesus said, you're right, what a waste. No. He said, leave her alone. She does this from adoration. Why did she adore Jesus? Because he was the first man who showed her any respect and forgave her. And he said, "Who he who is forgiven much, loves much. When you know, not that you think or you carry it around intellectually, when you know who you are, and like when I do, and we're in front of a holy God, you need to feel very afraid. And when you know, not just experience, that this holy God has loved you, and he said, I will pay for your bill, then what can you do but respond back? And you become what is in the Latin a pontifex. You've heard of the word pontifex? Pontifex Maximus? It means priest. But pontifex really means bridge builder. That's what the priests did. They were bridge builders between God and the people. And you and I are called into the city down in the valley into the west side and to build bridges. With those that are so beat up right now and they think getting high and getting hammered and jumping from bed to bed is the answer. And you are a royal priesthood, First Peter says. You are a holy nation. You are a bridge builder. And you go to them and by loving them say, I know a better way. Or to those that without hope are across denominational and racial and economic lines. Or like we said, just if we're going to make L.A. the greatest city for Christ in America, we're going to take the whole church to reach the whole city. And as we're working together, with these different ministries. That's why I just with a pastor uh, last week down in the Watts in South Central, and he's slugging it out down there. And his love for these people, and just by one of our church members befriending him and helping out, you can't believe the joy he got that a white suburbanite would do that. Or these Messianic Jews, these rabbis that we meet with, you know, they're not real loved by their own people for saying Jesus is the Messiah. And by us as Gentiles, they're not embraced by Gentiles either because who can dance the hora? You know, it's just crazy. And, and we don't understand their ways, but by building those bridges. Or that's why as we're trying to... Last night, 7,000 children under the age of 11 slept on the concrete in this city. And for us working with other, with the political and the market and the other churches and the service providers, are saying, "Hey, if nothing else for LA, our little part—not to our glory—but that no kid slept on the street alone. That is a gift. That's how you love Jesus. You love the people He loves. And the funny thing is, when we do that, then what comes back—the gift giving back to us. When, like we—I've told you many times—I will—we become what we worship." And when it says they returned home by another way, being warned, do you think they went back the same? Wouldn't you have loved to have been able to talk with them? They just saw a little baby. They didn't see, you know, a glow or anything. Jesus wasn't floating above, you know, the cradle or something. They just saw this little child. But there was something. And maybe the gods, maybe the God of Judah had done something. They didn't figure the Son of God had put on flesh yet. The disciples lived with him for three years, and though he did things, no man ever did. They watched him brutally crucified. It's when he exploded out of that tomb Easter morning, and later by the Holy Spirit, he wasn't just a great Savior. He was God the Son in our very midst. And when God comes and he leads us through these death experiences, he not only that frankincense, but that myrrh. And of course, myrrh is what you use to embalm a body prophesying of what Christ would do. And Jesus leads us not around death, but right through it. Man, that's a tough walk. We're all going to walk it. Sometimes it's the death of a dream. You say, oh God, I so wanted that. And I'm not going to have that now. He takes us by the hand. He says, don't be afraid. Sometime we took something, it might have been a broken heart. And we say, Lord, this is a very precious cup. It's called my heart. And if you spill it, Life won't be worth living. And God allowed life to knock it out of your hands. And you say, Lord. And he takes us by the hand and says, no, follow. Death itself someday will breathe its ugly breath on all of our shoulders. And the great news about Christmas is not just the birth of a child, but the birth of the death of death. That when Christ was crucified and overcame it, we don't need to be afraid of that anymore. Pope John the twenty-third, a remarkable man who helped with Vatican II back in the 1960s, he said a couple of funny things. They used to take the Pope there in Rome to all these Italian fashion shows. And he used to laugh because when they got really risque outfits, people would quit looking at the models and watch the Pope's face, <laughs> you know, to see what was going on. He said in the middle of life and all of his interruptions looking back, he realized the interruptions were life. Oh, we got all of our plans, and they're great, and you keep going for them. And then things get in the way, and you didn't want to have to deal with that. You know, someday we're going to look back, and that was the stuff of life. And rather than being upset, saying, Lord, I give this interruption back to you as a gift. Someday, we're all going to stand before the Lord. And when Christ comes back, some generation is going to get a last deal of the deck. And no eyeball is going to miss him then. And when he comes back and we stand in front of him, King of King and Lord of Lords, will it be incredible and Jesus himself will step forward and he will know us by name and when we embrace him and he hugs us and we smell his hair, I think, you know how babies and puppies smell kind of, you know, fresh? Who knows if our new bodies won't smell like that. I know they won't smell like this one. But there's... We stand in front of him and God comes and we embrace and we feel his heart against ours. And we'll be there. The only thing we'll say was, why didn't I trust him more? Do you know the quest of your heart and mine, I hope you see, is a person. You know that. It's Jesus. And the more we come to him, the more our heart is filled. The magi could read the signs. Can you read the signs, what God's doing in your life? He yanks your chain, and he'll either nudge you or he'll lead you with a two-by-four. It's your choice. I've had God lead me with a two-by-four before, and God says, come to me. Why? Because he wants to overcome our fear and our stubbornness. And the gifts that God has given to you, your talents, your opportunities, and your finances. Don't go cheap on God. Don't say, God, have your people call my people, and we'll get together. He doesn't do that. But come before him and say, Lord, because you love me this much, I adore you. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. That's a wise person. Let's do the same. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, I thank you that in this fullness of time that you stepped out of darkness into this broken, lost, sinful world. In that Christ child. And God, I thank you that He came to this world not just for a tour not just for a vacation but for a mission and that mission was to overcome sin and death and I thank you God, what God, what he treasured the most, what he was seeking was our heart and that Lord you would exchange the love of your heart, your son for us speaks of your love for us and all we can return and say oh God, blessed be your name, help us to love those that are without love and hope and help in this world help us to trust you until you come back And Lord, as we now come before you with our tithes and our offerings, we thank you for the gift of being able to give back to you, Lord, what you have loaned to us. I pray that, Lord, you would bless the gift and the giver alike. For those that can't give much, Lord, give them faith and show us how to help them. And for those of us that can give a lot, Lord, help us to learn the wisdom and the brilliance of being a steward. So thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for coming into this world for people like us. Glory be to your name. For your sake we pray. Amen. Amen.